When my mother and I arrived in Kigoma for the first time, we'd been told by the British expats living there that we absolutely had to take a cook with me. It'll be perfect, they said. Jane and her mother will have a superb cook. Well, he did wonders with the simple food we had, mostly stuff from tins that we took from Kigoma, with some fresh vegetables and fruits from the nearby village. After four months, Mum had to leave. She had to go back to England. Mum was leaving just before Christmas, well, a month before. And she and Dominic spent ages planning the feast that he would offer me on Christmas night. She'd even found plum pudding in a tin. I arrived in camp as usual, just as darkness fell. The little table where we had eaten our meals was laid with a plate, fork and knife, a tin of corned beef and a tin opener. The lamp wasn't lit, nor was the campfire. Dominic had passed out. He'd had such a wonderful time drinking his pombi with his friends. I just had to sit and laugh, especially as, perhaps with some twinge of shame, he'd managed to pick some wild flowers and put them in a glass on the table. I had the planned meal the next evening. Probably tasted even better. We are all connected. All our voices matter. And it will take all of our pooled talents and strengths to create a healthier planet. Our mother, our one and only home. I aspire to change the world too, because of the hope she gave me. The earth is beautiful. She devoted her life together to Together we can save the world. Together we can, together we will. What is your greatest reason for hope? I'm Jane Goodall, and this is the Hopecast. Today, I'm spending time with celebrated author, inventor, and environmentalist, Margaret Atwood. Margaret's written over 50 books, including The Handmaid's Tale, a renowned dystopian novel that's been adapted into a film and award-winning television series. She's also a dedicated climate activist and uses her platform to raise environmental awareness. In addition to exploring these themes in her writing, she has a series of green policies that she and her staff use, as well as online resources publicly available on her website. I'm so looking forward to our discussion on how storytelling can both educate and inspire audiences and make a positive impact on our world. I hope you enjoy this hopeful conversation with Margaret Atwood. Hello, my name is Margaret Atwood, and it's my very great pleasure to be talking today to the one and only Jane Goodall. Hello, Jane. Well, hello, Margaret. I'm Jane, and you're the only one and only Margaret as well. So we're both <laughs> talking to one and only. <laughs> yes, we are. Good for us. So when I'm writing a novel, I always decide what year the person is born. And then I know what was happening to them when they were 10, what was happening in the world, and when they were 20, and when they were 30. So you were born in 1934. And that means in the Depression. And then when you were six or five, along came World War II. So you were definitely a 
war child. You went through the war. And where were you living then? Well, just before the war, like six months before, my father took a house in Le Touquet in France. I was there with with my sister, mom and her friend and two kids. We'd been there three months and war broke out and we had to leave. And then came where I'm speaking from now, my grandmother's house, which is now a family house. And then as soon as we got here to Bournemouth, I spent all my time watching animals in the garden and the cliffs above the sea. And when we were in France, my friend Sally and I were the same age. And we both remember this great big expanse of water and watching frogs. And we saw a photograph the other day, and it was like a quarter-sized swimming pool. But when you're little, I don't know. But before we go on with me, it's your turn now. I was born in 39. So two uh, months after war broke out. So in fact, my whole early childhood was spent in that period. And um, my childhood was similar to yours in the animal watching department, uh, although possibly more so because we were in the Quebec North Woods and um, did a lot of frog watching and uh, turning over of logs in case there might be a newt or a snake. And um, my dad was a forest entomologist and an early conservationist, like very early, the, the period when people thought you were kind of a lunatic if you were interested in those things. So early Sierra Club and very early knowledge of ecosystems and very against, for instance, wholesale spraying of forests for insect pests. I always thought it was a bad idea like that. So I, I sort of grew up that way. But I don't imagine that your family was saying, Jane, we want you to grow up and go off and study chimpanzees. <laughs> <laughs> now, they have all these questions they want us to answer. And um, three of them are about this weird thing, which is um, one's legacy. Do you ever think about that, Jane? Well, when I saw the question, I thought about it, and it says, whose legacies do you want to build on? And the people I thought of, people like Rachel Carson, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Magandhi. Well, I can quite easily say my dad. And um, I suppose both of us would, would like the same thing, but I don't consider it any one person's legacy. It's going to have to be a group effort. And that would be, let us have a habitable planet and let us have a planet with a lot of biodiversity and let us try not to lose any more species because we've already lost a lot. We have. We're in the middle of the sixth great extinction. I know. It's terrifying and, and, and very dispiriting, which brings us to the next thing that people always ask about. I bet they ask you too. And that's the hope word. Where do you get hope? I think you should start that one off. Well, Okay, so my, my answer usually is, why not? <laughs> so uh, if you're not hopeful, things are going to get less hopeful. And uh, if you are hopeful, that may generate more hope and actually inspire people to take action. Because if you don't have any hope, then there's no, there's no use doing anything. So people who say, we're doomed, I'm, I'm just not interested in that. Um, it doesn't generate any sort of uh, positive activity. 
And uh, my model is always the Black Death. So what did people do during the Black Death? And and some of them were hopeful and tried to take positive action, and others just thought, well, it's the end of the world. We might as well just party. You know, the great good thing, I think, is when you do something and you see it's made a difference, which it will, you feel good. That's great. Then you want to do more to feel better. It's like the program we have around Gombe now in 104 villages in Tanzania. We call it community-led conservation and uh, started in 1994 with the 12 villages just around the Chimp Park. It was a group of local Tanzanians going into these villages and sitting down and asking the people what they thought we could do to make their lives better, mainly restoring fertility to the overused farmland and better health and education. Now we have scholarships to give girls a chance of secondary education, microcredit programs so women can start their own small businesses, family planning information, and they know that good education is a way to rise out of poverty. So we've seen a reduction in poverty, and whereas in the late 80s, I flew over Gombe, which had been part of this great equatorial forest belt. And by the late 80s, it was a tiny island of forest surrounded by totally bare hills, more people living there than the land could support. But now the trees have come back. And the people understand that protecting the environment isn't just for wildlife. And that's in six other African countries now. That's amazing. And, and so essential, because if there isn't something in it for the people on the ground, they won't do it. And, and why should they? And if they don't buy into the conservationists, there's no long-term future. The stories about the resilience of nature, the stories about the indomitable human spirit, stories about what children are doing. And so I'm sure you agree with me that if you want to change somebody's mind, it doesn't really help to attack them and point fingers at them and tell them they're bad, you've got to find a way to reach the heart. Stories. Yes, well, we expect you at the head of the parade, Jane, carrying the banner, which says hope. But you're there already, so you don't have to actually be in a parade. So uh, they also want to know, where have you found the most meaning in your life? What has been the most rewarding? Well, it was incredibly rewarding when the chimpanzees lost their fear of me after four months, when you overcome the fear of an animal. I mean, I've, I have lunch every day under my favorite beech tree, and a little robin comes along, and he'll now sit on my hand to eat uh, his little suet crumbs. I'm afraid I'm a bit uh, vegan, but he's not. But anyway... <laughs> Having a baby was incredibly rewarding, watching him grow up and comparing him in my mind with the little chimps. <laughs> now it's your turn. My turn. Well, I find it a very difficult question to answer because a lot of things have been rewarding, but I, I don't think that's why you do them. And some of the things that we have done have been not rewarding because, because people did not at first receive them well. I think it's rewarding right now that I'm still working. I think that's always been rewarding. So I'm happy and grateful about that. Now they want to talk about the feminism word, which for me is a sub-branch of human rights. 
And uh, that is a conversation that has been ongoing. And I think anybody who who went through World War II and the period leading up to it and the period after it is quite aware of those issues because we have seen many dictatorships come and go. And we are now living in a, a period when some of them seem to be on the rise again, which is very worrisome to me. But it has changed a lot since the uh, 50s or 40s. Actually, women were very active, but it's the usual thing with revolutions and wars. You know, women are very instrumental, very helpful. And then they're told, oh, that's enough of you. We're finished with that, you know, back to the bungalow and here's a washing machine to make you feel happier. You would have been in your 20s when that came along and probably got the full force of it, whereas I was a little bit younger and we just didn't pay any attention to it. So were you were you told that you couldn't do things because you were female? Yeah, I was, of course, when I wanted to go and live with wild animals. Everybody laughed at me. But you see, I had this amazing mother and a wonderful family. The scientists were kind of scornful at first of the findings of this young girl. And, oh, I only got credit because the geographic came in and they only came in with money because I had nice legs. If that was said now, you know, it would be shocking. (laughs) It's true. Margaret, I understand that your new book, Burning Questions, is coming out next month. What is it about? Oh, it's a collection of essays from 2004 to roughly now. And it's the third such collection. There are two earlier ones. So that's it's the third in a set. And it's just stuff that I was writing during those years, which were pretty tumultuous years. Environmental questions were front and center for me. And I find myself, because we went through a big pile of paper to get these essays out and decide which ones to put in. I noticed myself making quite a few speeches about this and telling people that if they kill the oceans, they'll stop breathing. That's my short form (laughs) of why they should do something. Because people usually, in general, are slow to action until it's impacting them. Well, that's it. You know, the weather patterns have changed everywhere. They have. And of course, one of the net results of that is going to be a Uh, food shortages because uh, people are used to growing certain things in certain places. And if you have uh, fires, floods, and droughts, and extreme temperatures, particularly hot ones, you're you're just not going to get the harvest. And that's why we got all these climate refugees. That is exactly right. Um, It causes social unrest. It causes wars. It causes climate refugees uh, because people's places where they're used to living are are being destroyed, not just through other people, but but through the weather. Do you remember going to Sudbury, Ontario and releasing a trout into the lake? Yes, of course I do. (laughs) I loved that picture of you doing that, uh, because I remember Sudbury from the 40s when it it was like the moon. It had been overlogged, it had been burnt over, and then it had all of this acid smoke falling on it, and nothing, I mean, nothing grew. And it was a a citizen effort 
They just decided that they did not want to live without nature, any nature, and they set about planting a forest. And uh, first they stuffed some lime and soil into the cracks in these very black rocks, and they planted things that come back after fires, such as blueberries. And now they have a forest, and the hardest thing to fix was the water, um, because it always is. And shorelines are the hardest of all to bring to bring back, but they managed to do it. And there was you, releasing a live uh, trout into this water that had been completely lethal for years and years and years and years. And it was because of that that I, I wrote a whole chapter about Sudbury. We're about to make an IMAX film in which Sudbury will be the reason for hope based on the resilience of nature. Yes, and also the efforts of people who really did make a difference because they decided to do that. Yeah, like rescuing animals from the brink of extinction. Exactly right. Uh, so what are you going to do next? What's your next big thing? There's an awful lot we need to change. We haven't talked about the rights of animals. We need to ban factory farming. We need to ban unsustainable commercial fishing. We're killing soil with pesticides and herbicides. I mean, it's terrible. That's the real reason for buying organic. It's not that it's going to kill you not to. It's that we need to regenerate the organic soil because it holds carbon and, and dead soil doesn't. Regenerative farming is the way to go in permaculture. I'm with you, Jane. <laughs> so I'm very excited about the fact that you can make bricks out of, out of mushrooms. <laughs> you can grow them out using food waste, and uh, then you can bake them. You don't have to cut down any trees. Yep. Also, they're making plastic from mushroom as well. Yes, they're making also plastic from, from just general food waste, uh, too. So I think these are going to come on stream, let us hope. Yep, absolutely. In your work with gender equality, there's a tribe in one of the Latin American countries, and I was talking to the chief. Mm -hmm. He said, our tribe is like an eagle, and one wing is male, the other wing is female, and only when the wings are equal will our tribe fly high. That is a wonderful thought. I will tell that to Equality Now, which works around the world uh, on laws having to do with, with gender. And it's a good saying. Wonderful. Well, it's been great meeting you and talking to you, and I look forward to seeing your latest book. I'm going to go look up your legs right away. <laughs> <laughs> good old legs. The main message is that every single one of us matters. Just like in the rainforest, every single one of us has some role to play in this complex life. And every single one of us makes some difference every single day. You cannot live through a day and not make some difference on the planet. And we have a choice. Do we want to make the place better? Oh, don't we care? Feel hopeful and inspired to act. 
with the Jane Goodall Hopecast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and anywhere podcasts are found. I'm your host, Jane Goodall. The Jane Goodall Hopecast is produced by the Jane Goodall Institute. Our production partner is Frequency Media. Michelle Corey is our executive producer. Our producers are Ina Galkusha and Alana Hellens. Our associate producer is Laura Boyman. And Matthew Ernest Filler is our editor and sound designer. Our music is composed and performed by Ruth Mendelssohn with additional violin tracks from Angie Shear. Sound design and music composition for the Conservation Chorus is by Matthew Ernest Filler.